This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions show. I'm Andy. Uh, tonight, Viv is reporting from a talk she went to by philosopher Clive Hamilton. He is a professor of ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. But before we go there, uh, Beyond Zero are holding a film fundraiser. So if you'd like to check that out, go to bze.org.au forward slash events forward slash lists forward slash. Before we start the show, though, we also have three in-season double passes to give away to the first three callers to Al Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, in cinemas from August 10th. Ring 3CR on 94198377 now for your chance to win. If you'd like to just take a moment to get a pen, I'll be here waiting to take your call. So that's 94198377 for your chance to win double passes to an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. Now we'll begin with the Clive Hamilton interview. Tonight's show takes us to Sydney, where philosopher Clive Hamilton is talking to a young audience at the School of Life, down near Circular Quay. His subject is Rethinking Our Responsibility to the Earth. His book, his new one, is called Defiant Earth, and it's hard to take. As he says... I don't want to think about what do we do. Uh, I want to uh, think about... What the hell does this mean? Clive Hamilton has reported to us from conferences called Four Degrees of Warming. He stared into the future. This does not mean that he's not an activist. He's taken time in this book, Defiant Earth, to just do the thinking, not to tell us what to do. And it was interesting in two sessions I went to, two seminars, where people were almost begging him to say, what, what should we do? And he said to them, I don't want to tell you what to do I I want I don't want to it's not about what to do it's about how to think how to find meaning in all of this he's researched geoengineering and he's given his wisdom to the climate council he's a strong activist and he said to one person if you knew how many death threats I've had you wouldn't say I'm speaking from an ivory tower <laughs> 
Someone else suggested he was an apologist for inactivity, but it's not about inactivity. He said that activity is a way of putting off the thinking, and we all know that. We all do something. We all tell each other, just do a little bit. But climate change doesn't demand a little bit. It's a change in the whole Earth system, and we need to have a new type of thinking, a new relationship to the Earth. As he said, Mother Nature is no longer a passive, docile, motherly creature, as you might find in the Pope's encyclical, Laudato Si. It's not something that we need to nurture and uh, protect. Nature is taking revenge now. Nature has been prodded into an over-energetic and over-active state, which is why we're getting all of this climate disruption. Here is the inauguration of a vast new way or new obligation to rethink humankind. Where it will go, I don't know. We will hear Clive Hamilton speaking in a dialogue with Dr Tim Dean, who's a philosopher and science writer. And at the end, I'll just give you a little snippet of his actual talk. I couldn't reproduce the whole because it was an illustrated uh, PowerPoint sort of lecture and there were huge graphs of the massive epochs that we've come from and how tiny this little Holocene period that we have enjoyed, which gave us civilization, is in comparison to the whole history of the Earth. So... Here we have Clive Hamilton. I hope you read his book, Defiant Earth, and that you enjoy this rather difficult dialogue. Clive Hamilton is an Australian author and public intellectual. Since 2008, he's been the Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. He was the founder of the progressive think tank, the Australian Institute, and its executive director for 14 years. He has published on a wide range of subjects, but is best known for his books, including Growth Fetish, Affluenza, Silencing Dissent, Requiem for a Species, Why We Resist the Truth About Climate Change, and What Do We Want? The Story of Protest in Australia. His latest book, Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene, has just been published and is available in our bookstore in the foyer after the event tonight. Dr. Tim Dean, who will be joining Clive in conversation tonight, is a philosopher and a science writer. He has a PhD from the University of New South Wales on evolution and morality and has an interest in ethics, the philosophy of biology, the philosophy of science and moral psychology. He is an honorary associate in the philosophy department of the University of Sydney and we're thrilled to have him here this evening. Let's say that we are moving into a new epoch defined by the impact that we've had on uh, nature. You've already shown that nature is always in a state of flux. It has been in a state of flux, e even over the last couple of hundred thousand years, which is a very short amount of time through the lifetime of the Earth. Why does it matter that things are going to potentially change, the environment is going to change from where it has been relatively stable for the last 10,000 years. Why is that important? Well, it matters because for the 190,000 years before the arrival of the Holocene, um, 
humans lived a pretty precarious existence. I mean, it wasn't great to have to, uh, you know, um, live in the freezing cold. I mean, there are certain points in that uh, period where there were, it was estimated there were no more than a few thousand humans left because of, uh, the struggle for existence was so intense that most of us died off. And if you think about how... Uh, with the arrival of civilization uh, and its evolution over the last seven or uh, eight thousand years, how it has transformed the way we function as beings and how extraordinarily dependent we are on major centralized systems for delivering the essentials of life, the water supply, for example. If we move into a period of uh, functioning of the Earth system that looks more like, you know, uh, the Jurassic or something like that, I'm guessing that despite our extraordinary uh, technological sophistication, most of us are going to have uh, an extraordinarily difficult time surviving. Basically, huge numbers of people are going to die, and that's why uh, the transformation of the climate even that which is now locked in is going to be so difficult for humankind. I want to tease apart here why we care about the environment at all, why we care about nature. And it seems as though a, a very strong thread in environmental thinking is that nature has intrinsic value, that we ought to care about nature um, because it has a right to be the way it is. And we hear this when people talk about uh, whales have a right to exist, uh, independent of anything that they have to do with us, whether they're useful to us or not as food or scientific you know, measurements or whatever it is, or even perhaps that mosquitoes have a right to exist even if they're a nuisance to us, or that an ecosystem has an intrinsic value just by being there. But what you're suggesting here is that the, 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 the Holocene matters because it's good for us. And the Anthropocene matters to us because it could be bad for us. Mm. <clears throat> is, that, is the reason the Anthropocene matters, is it because the intrinsic value of the Earth is being insulted in some way, or is it really comes down to what we care about to flourish ourselves? Well, first, I think it's natural for us to worry about our own survival um, um, because we care about human suffering. And... Maybe this is a topic you'll bring up later, Tim, but I'm constantly astonished by those people, often with scientific training, who's, who, who say, well, you know, if we all die off, uh, the Earth will carry on, Gaia doesn't care, it's just, a, you know, we're a blip in the cosmos, so why, you know, why do we care? I find this an astonishing kind of escape from massive human suffering. Sorry, that's a digression. Uh, it bugs me a lot, and I'm getting it more and more. So, um, look, I thought quite a bit about the, the question of intrinsic value because I've, it's always something that I've argued. I mean, until I thought about this book and wrote this book, you know, I very much took a, a kind of eco-philosophical viewpoint about, uh, which was a, an ecocentric viewpoint that what matters is the, is the dynamism and the functioning and the integrity of ecosystems and humans must learn to live within that. And, and within that 
kind of eco-philosophical uh, understanding was very much the embedded idea of intrinsic value. It wasn't just a kind of functionalist view that unless we keep the ecosystems healthy, then it's going to be bad for us. Um, the, it went beyond that and attributed intrinsic value to uh, nature as such. And as I thought about, well, how does this notion of intrinsic value, which had always been important to me, how does it fit into the argument of defined earth? And I realised that, like pretty much everything, I mean, what I've done in this book is try to break, I've had to try and break away for so much thinking that's embedded deeply in me because what we confront is a profoundly changed situation where what we understand <clears throat> as nature or the environment is a Holocene conceptions. What we're now confronted with is a wakened, angry, raging beast. And I chose those words because they are the very words that are deployed by um, earth system scientists and climate scientists because they have searched for metaphors that try to explain how the Earth's functioning, how its behaviour is different um, now that we have disturbed it from its Holocene slumber. And you can only use metaphors in order to try to capture it. And so the essential argument of, of, of this is, book is that we have to discard our understandings of nature, of the environment that we've always had. And that is whether you are a mining company or an ideologist for a mining company that says nature exists for us to rip what we can out of it and make ourselves happy, which is, and after all, explicitly or implicitly the basic understanding of our eco-political system, economic political system. But, but, and that is now clearly wrong because nature isn't sit, going to sit there passively while we go and rip the resources out of it and stuff our waste in the atmosphere. You know, it is now angry. You know, it is going to exact revenge. It is now defying our attempts to exploit it in this way. But, and here's the fundamental point, that's kind of almost goes without saying, almost goes without saying. But the point about the Anthropocene and what's happened to the functioning of the Earth system is that the environmental understanding of the natural world is also now outdated and incorrect and belongs to the Holocene. Because the environmentalist understanding, which is one I had until maybe two years ago, is that there is this um, um, defenceless nature which we're raping and pillaging. And one of the actually sort of uh, best kind of most compassionate manifestations of this understanding is in Pope Francis's encyclical, where he talks about uh, Mother Nature, Sister Earth, who are there to embrace us in her warm and loving um, arms because she loves us. Well, actually, she doesn't. <laughs> She's pissed off. And... Um, She's going to do us a great deal of damage. And so when I think about this, uh, this transformer relationship and how it has to, how it challenges so many deep ways of understanding, and I say, well, what does it mean for intrinsic value? I think that category doesn't belong in this. It's not that I'm rejecting it uh, or reframing it. I just think I can't think the notion of intrinsic value in terms of this new relationship that we have. 
But if, in, if, it, if this idea of nature being intrinsically valuable is so dear to the ecological movement, like the deep ecological movement particularly, uh, and if it's a motivating factor for a lot of environmentalism, how should we start thinking about the way that we interact with the environment? How should we be thinking about, to the degree that we can affect it, what we should do without thinking about it's just intrinsic, intrinsically valuable. So, for example, do we not worry about preserving certain ecosystems if they have minimal effect on us, if we can spend our resources altering or preserving other ecosystems that are more amenable to enabling human survival or flourishing? Well, what I'm saying doesn't render redundant the kind of you know, coin a phrase here the kind of micro ecological stories that you're worried about but what I'm saying now is that there is a macro ecological story and that is the earth system taken as a system which in itself has its own functioning totality and, now, and we've disturbed it, we've knocked it off its course in a way that's going to last hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of years. In other words, there is no going back to the Holocene. It's too late. We cannot turn back the geological clock. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we think about this? And I'm arguing in the book that we have to start thinking hard about that question. That is, how do we think this new situation before we decide what to do. Now, I'm not saying we stop what we do. Of course, we keep doing what we're doing. But this book is not a, kind of, is not a rallying cry. Um, it doesn't end up with you know, 12 things you can do to save us from the Anthropocene. Um, be, partly because in, uh, the leap to action is an escape. The leap to action is often a way of avoiding thinking. And when you're confronted with something of such profound significance as, as this, which in my view is at least as significant as the arrival of modernity, probably as significant as the arrival of civilization itself, then when something, a rupture like that happens in human history, which actually is now a rupture in Earth history as well, we are going to have to cast off everything we believe not, not just that, it goes beyond that we're going to have to change our understanding of what we are as, as beings uh, in the way that when modernity, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment arrived the way humans in the west at least began to think about themselves went through a radical transformation um, and I think that's going to happen again, but it will take decades and so I I don't want to think about what do we do. Uh, I want to uh, think about what the hell does this mean? What you're talking about there is kind of speaks to the way we have thought about our relationship with nature for a very long time. Uh, we have seen nature variously as being um, hostile to our survival and something that needs to be conquered to, to, so that we can persist or as a resource that we can exploit uh, or in the more modern time that we are somehow separate from nature. We are special and elevated above. Uh, and there are many uh, stories and narratives that place nature there explicitly 
for us to exploit. So how should we think about our relationship to nature now? Well, this is in a way the theme I try to develop uh, through the book. And, you know, as I said, uh, previously I'd always gravitated towards um, eco-philosophies, which, and in eco-philosophy there's one, the number one public enemy is anthropocentrism. This view, as you've just described, Tim, that uh, we are the special creature and uh, therefore that gives us a right to take from nature and subdue it. Uh, that might, word might even come from the Bible, although I believe it's translated from the Hebrew in a way that has a different kind of meaning. Um, and, you know, there have been strong criticisms of, of, of certain interpretations of the Bible because it gives rise to an anthropocentric justification for humans being God's special creatures and so on. But as I thought about uh, the Anthropocene, and you remember I said there are two fundamental facts uh, that, the climate, that the Earth system scientists are telling us. One is uh, that um, uh, nature has never been more powerful, it's, uh, that the climate system is more energetic, that uh, it's uh, going into a, an uncontrollable, unpredictable and dangerous uh, era uh, ahead of us. But also humans are extraordinarily powerful in a way we couldn't have imagined ourselves to be. So powerful we can deflect the earth from its previous course as determined by blind natural forces. And so I thought, we are the special creature. We are a conscious being that has, through a, a, a series of decisions, knowingly, particularly over the last 25 years, and, and definitely over the next decades, have chosen to alter the course of the earth in a very... Uh, stupid, dangerous, short-sighted way, as it happens, uh, but we could have chosen otherwise, and now we could it's still, you know, the nature of the Anthropocene is still undetermined, depending on what we do over the next decades. And so in the book I develop what I call a new Anthropocentrism, one that's built around this fundamental fact. Not that we have a divine right to transform the Earth, certainly not to shift off its geological uh, course, it's not a moral um, power or special place we hold, but, a, but an actual one. We are. We cannot deny this fact, and we have to confront it. We have to own up to it. We have to take responsibility for it. And that's a kind of kernel, and it's no more than a kernel at this stage, of a new kind of philosophical anthropocentrism. So if we, if we acknowledge our significance in shaping the nature of you know, the Earth's history now, what do you think about those who have said, well, if technology has caused the problems that we have to, today and we, we show that through technology we have this power, why can't we use technology to help solve these same problems? And there have been plenty of uh, geoengineering pro projects um, suggested, things like seeding the oceans with iron to encourage the uh, a growth of phytoplankton to absorb uh, carbon dioxide or um, something as simple as painting roofs white to reflect solar radiation or something even more ambitious like um, putting up solar shades in orbit to, to reduce the amount of light uh, and solar radiation hitting the earth. Can we embrace technology? Can we embrace our power and potentially make 
the world steer nature in a direction that is more amenable to what we're used to in the Holocene? Well, this is a truly uh, big question that we have to confront. Um, First of all, I'm not anti-technology. You know, I want more uh, and more sophisticated uh, wind and solar and other kinds of renewable power to be built and operated as soon as possible. But what you're talking about, Tim, is uh, a kind of thinking which uh, goes under the rubric of eco-modernism. And this is the view that, just as you put it, uh, you know, we are the technologically powerful creature. We have the technology. Actually, the arrival of the Anthropocene is a fantastic opportunity for humans to show just how powerful we are. But the problem with this is that what it recognises is only one of those two f- fundamental facts of Earth system science, and that is that humans are more powerful than ever. Ever, What it doesn't acknowledge and hasn't acknowledged, if you look at the writings of these eco-modernists, you see they just don't get it. They think it's still just about changing ecosystems here and there. Is that this other fact that the Earth system itself has undergone a transformation. It is no longer the passive, easily manipulated Holocene Earth. We don't live on that Earth anymore and we can't go back to that Earth, sadly. Um, it's the Anthropocene Earth. It's the wakened beast. It's the raging animal that's been poked and prodded one time too many. And so we have to ask ourselves, given that we're uh, now living on the back of this angry beast, do we really believe that we can pacify it? Do we really believe, having changed the course of the earth and set it off on this new path, uh, that we can use our technology uh, to subdue it. And when you look at the kinds of technologies, uh, geoengineering technologies that have been proposed, uh, particularly the sulphate aerosol spraying, that is coating the entire Earth with a layer of sulphate aerosol sprayed out of the back of aeroplanes, so it reduces the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth and thereby turns down the temperature. I mean, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> Quite apart from the technological problems that it immediately throws up, it may well divert the monsoon, for example. So millions of people in Pakistan and, and Western India start to starve. Quite apart from those kinds of impacts, who's going to have their hand on the global thermostat? And so the geopolitical implications are truly frightening. And so these kinds of grand technological schemes to take control of the Earth system as a whole are kind of Prometheus on steroids. And, uh, you know, we deserve to have our livers pecked out (laughs) in eternity if we attempted to do it. Well, I I can probably anticipate your answer to this question. What do you say to those, I think uh, Stephen Hawking suggested that, well, we can find another planet. Perhaps we should... uh, uh, think about colonizing the stars more quickly because we've uh, already ruined this planet. Is that a viable option? Is that, is that giving false hope to people to think, well, you know, we can afford to be a bit more uh, frivolous about our own planet if we can just find one of the many others out there to live on? Well, yeah, if we can't find a utopia on Earth, we'll go find it on another planet. Uh, but think about... Um um, the small number of people, uh, you know, maybe a couple of thousand who would be taken on these spaceships to go and um, terraform another planet. I mean, the rest would be left to die. But think about um, the civilization, the values, 
that would be taken uh, on that spaceship going off to do it all again somewhere else. The idea that, uh, that we can leave behind a ruined Earth destroyed by climate change or maybe a nuclear conflagration, leave it behind and go and start again, to me, this strikes me as the most profound moral failing that humankind could ever engage in. We shouldn't even think about it. So I want to go back to the, the definition of the Anthropocene for a moment and when it starts. And I know there's a debate around when we should consider the starting date for it. Some have said that it uh, should be around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Some have even thrown it further back to say it's around the time that humans engaged in agriculture and there was more selective breeding going on uh, and that was affecting uh, the environment. And others have pegged it to, uh, in the mid-20th century after the Second World War. Uh, and around the time of... Um, when we talk about epochs in terms of before-present, which is defined as uh, 1950 anyway, around the time that, uh, as you showed, nuclear testing was starting. First of all, when do you think we should start the Anthropocene? And why does the debate about the starting date matter at all? It's not like we peg other epochs to start on a very particular year. Why is picking a year relevant in this case? Well, there's a, there's a lot of confusion in the scientific community, quite apart from the social scientists and humanities uh, people who, who delve into this, and, and uh, about the starting date. And it's partly because Earth System Science, which is a very new science that only emerged in the 80s and 90s, around the notion of the Earth System itself, as I explained uh, previously, uh, is taking a long time to sink in. And so... You said you used the phrase, as some people do, scientists uh, who write about this, um, that you know you could take it back uh, a few thousand years with um, uh, domestication of animals, for example, when humans started changing the environment. But it's not about when humans started changing the environment. It's about when humans started changing the functioning of the Earth system, which is something utterly different. It's the totality of the Earth as a functioning system, dynamic, ever in flux, an integrated whole. And when humans disturb the functioning of the Earth system, that's when the new geological epoch arrived. And so, as always, I take my guidance from the people, because I'm not a scientist, but I take my guidance from the people who are most, whose, whose opinions have most credibility. And they are pretty much those collected together in the Anthropocene Working Group, which is the body um, set up by the International Commission on Stratigraphy, which is the bunch of geologists and other people who, who approve the geological timescale, the thing I started with. And they set up the Anthropocene Working Group to do a lot of work and then come back and advise it on whether, they, whether there's enough evidence, physical evidence, to allow the International Commission on Stratigraphy to deem that the Anthropocene has begun. It hasn't formally begun yet. And um, the Anthropocene Working Group has, and there are 30 or so members, have come to a definitive uh, view that it began after the Second World War. So that's good enough for me. 
Um, just as the microphones start making their way around the room, I want to ask you another question, which is you've said already that you're not that interested in what can we do, what can we, you know, how much more recycling can we do to fix the Anthropocene and take it back to a, the previous epoch. But you've written this book to change the way we think and to change the way we think about ourselves and our relationship with nature. Why change the way we think? What's the benefit in that? Well, I think, well, we have become, we have this sudden realisation breaking over us, and that is that we are not, uh, as we previously thought of ourselves, as creatures that um, can damage ecosystems, uh, can uh, warm the earth, um, um, that can uh, pollute rivers and oceans, but we can change the functioning of the earth system in its totality and change uh, the way it will now behave for tens, hundreds of thousands of years. And as I've said, as I've stressed, I think this is a, a truly profound event so that when I say uh, I think we will change the way we think, I think we will be compelled to. I mean, one way of thinking about this is ontologically, if I can go there for a moment. That is, ontology is the aspect of philosophy, or you could say the foundation of philosophy, which is understanding the nature of existence or entities. And I think ontologically we have to think about the Earth system in a, the Earth in a new way, the Earth and the Earth system. And that is, previously we thought about the Earth system as being this entity that, which, which underwent huge changes over long periods of time as a result of the blind forces of nature. And now we have to accept that it's not just the blind forces of nature that determine the functioning of the Earth system, but the operations, the behaviour of a conscious, willing, decision-making being. So you've got this new, uh, I call it volition, injected into the uh, blind forces of nature. And so the ontology of the Earth system itself is different. And I'd, I also want to argue is the nature of human beings has now changed, certainly in the way we understand ourselves in, in modern times. We are now the being whose behaviour is injected into the functioning of the Earth system itself. I don't know how our thinking will change. I think that um, I hope what I've done is to say in this book something really big has happened. We don't know what to make of it. It will take decades to think through just in the way the arrival of modernity took decades to think through um, what that means and so what I'm proposing is that here is the inauguration of a vast new way or new um, uh, obligation to think to rethink humankind where it will go I don't know and welcome back to BZE Community Show. We still have two double passes left to Al Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, in cinemas from August 10th. If you'd like to, if you'd like a double pass, ring in 3CR now, waiting for your call. That's 94198377. Uh, basically BZE are having a fundraiser for the 
release of the film and if you'd like to check out the fundraiser and when it's happening and what's happening go to bze.org.au forward slash events forward slash list and so what we just heard then was tim dean speaking with clive hamilton we'll return to the talk now with clive hamilton answering questions from the audience There was a question about the impact of more population on the Earth. Well, clearly, uh, the more human beings you have on the Earth, um, the greater the environmental impact, given the per capita impact, if you like. Um, And clearly, the Earth system would be coping a lot better if there were only a couple of uh, billion uh, human beings. You know, some people speculate... Um, about how many uh, human beings the Earth system can actually accommodate in perpetuity. It depends hugely, of course, on how much they consume and the kind of technology that they use. Some people have said one billion. Some people have said a few hundred million. I think it's kind of impossible to say, except a lot less than now. And, um, and so the ageing of the population and population decline in certain mature uh, economies like Japan um, is, I think, uh, uh, only to be welcomed because it has to happen sooner or later. That's just in the nature of uh, demographic um, change. That uh, that when you have uh, that that the slowdown in and uh, stabilisation of population growth naturally brings with it an ageing of the population. So unless the population of the Earth, and indeed it applies in each country, is to continue to grow forever, you must get population ageing in the way they have in Japan. So every nation is just going to have to deal with it. The sooner uh, they deal with it, the better. And so this is one reason why you know, I'm so opposed to this kind of um, presumption is kind of an ideology that uh, aging, uh, the aging of a population is a bad thing. I actually think it's a good thing. There are all sorts of social benefits of the aging of a population. Um, fewer hoons, for example. <laughs> we have another question down the front here. Thank you for your talk. I, I interviewed you the first time I did radio, and it was after you'd come back from London to a four degrees of warming conference. And I'm glad you'll keep thinking about this, and it's not about doing, it is about thinking. But you pitched us, us against nature, but we're not unified. That seems to me such a profound problem. That's more depressing than climate change, the lack of unity, and I think we'll blow ourselves up before we become unified. What do you think? Yes, Yes, um, uh, I talk about uh, us against nature, but there is no us because we are so d- divided against each other, which, uh, and, and we may well blow ourselves up before you know, the Anthropocene does its worst. Look, this is a fascinating and complicated question, and it, uh, it, uh, there's another kind of angle that I'll mention here because there's been a furious debate within the social science and humanities community among those who uh, are trying to think through the Anthropocene uh, around the term itself. And there's been strong objections from some uh, people on the, on the left uh, about the use of Anthropocene because it aggregates all humanity into one category and, and, and kind of implies that human beings in general are responsible for the bringing on of this new geological epoch or let's take its largest component, climate change. 
And of course that's true. Uh, we know that the causes of uh, climate change are very differentiated but um, I think, I mean I agree with Deepesh Chakrabarti who made the, uh, the historian at Chicago did his PhD at ANU as it happens who made this very profound point that uh, the history of humans and the history of Earth have done something which was beyond contemplation previously and that is they have converged. Who would ever have thought, certainly no historian that human history would converge with the deep history of the earth in the way that it has. And he says that this fact um, prompts us to think about humanity in general as humankind, um, as, as a kind of entity in itself and its relationship to the earth, in addition to the differentiated, differentiated impact of humankind and our variable greenhouse gas emissions. But even on that point, there's a, there's, there's a point to be made about just how differentiated it is. I could go on at length, but I'll just leave you with one fact. Fact, a very powerful fact. And that is this, that the average uh, greenhouse gas emissions of a Chinese person are now higher than the average greenhouse gas emissions of a European. And chances are that the average emissions of uh, an Indian in 30 years' time may well be higher than that of a European. I hope it doesn't, and there are some quite good signs uh, that it won't. But that does blow out of the water the argument, uh, which I've been advocating in some of my previous books, that you know, it's the rich, rich world um, you know, divided against the poor world. It's far more complicated than that. But it's also true, we have to recognise, that the real decision-making is made by the system. It's made by the kind of economic political system in which we live. And the truth is that in most cases, if a powerful individual you know, had an epiphany sitting on the beach one day and decided to go back and as prime minister or the CEO of a massive corporation or something and completely change the way they operate, you know, they'd be out of a job in a month and someone conformable to the system would take their place. And so it's a profound system change that has to happen. And as I've argued in books like Growth Fetish and Affluenza, which I wrote with Richard Dennis, um, so many of us have a stake in the system. You know, many of us in this room, I imagine, are profound, deep uh, critics of the system. But the power of consumer capitalism is so great that the vast majority of everyday people do have a deep investment in the system and continuing consumption and the kinds of rewards and acknowledgement that are built into uh, the economic political system that dominates Australia uh, but which is profoundly damaging to the environment. So I hope there's some kind of transformation but the truth is I don't believe uh, that it's uh, likely and certainly not inevitable that there will be a transition to that the, the common threat we face will bring about a common sense of humankind and the need to take control of our destiny in the common good. The next question was about the importance of Indigenous wisdom and Indigenous perspectives, seeing as Indigenous people all around the world have been guardians and custodians and stewards of the earth. What can we learn from them? Indigenous people don't know what to do about the Anthropocene. Uh, they now live on a radically differently functioning Earth as well. And, and, and going back to old ways which were appropriate to a Holocene Earth 
um, I think will no longer work. And so I don't, for a number of reasons, um, don't think that the answer is to go back in any way because what we face is a future that is completely, radically new. It's a rupture. And I think we're going to have to work it out afresh rather than revisiting uh, ways of understanding that have come in the past. The last question is about hope and despair. Clive Hamilton had been talking about how we are grieving for the loss of our future, at least the Holocene future that we might have imagined. It's a bit like the idea of Christian hope. You know, this idea, which I'm not hostile to, actually. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not hostile to the idea that, you know, some uh, divine force or some, I'm trying to think of a word, that, that carries the idea of external agency without using something that has a super, kind of supernatural connotation that might come along and rescue humanity. Not that humanity really deserves to be rescued, uh, I might say. So that then comes to the question, given we're talking about Christian hope, about the notion of hope, uh, helplessness and despair. Because I've often said, well, I've often thought and occasionally said that if you're not despairing, then you're not listening to what the scientists are saying. And then uh, uh, many people say, well, I must say fewer people say this than used to. Well, you can't uh, say despairing things because people will give up hope and they'll collapse in helplessness and then it's all over and why should we bother? But I actually don't think human beings operate like that. I mean, it's like a grieving process um, because what we're grieving for is the loss of the future, the loss of the future that we imagined. But just as people naturally come out of those early stages of grieving, of despair, of depression, of helplessness, um, they find a way to carry on uh, in the new circumstances in which they find themselves. And this is what I've noticed, actually, in the environment movement, climate activists and so on, since 2009, Copenhagen, actually, when after Copenhagen, they all disappeared into the kind of slough of despond. It was a horrible, horrible period. Um, but then they came out of it. They didn't stop being climate activists. They carried on, but they carried on with a different kind of consciousness. And I think that's what, not only what we must do, but actually what we naturally will do. I have to say I do know a few people who have got stuck there in that despair, and it's not a pretty sight. But most human beings emerge out of that and find a way of carrying on, uh, perhaps a bit sadder, uh, but in a way there's a kind of profundity to the understanding of what we are and where we're going and what we must now do. We've been listening to Clive Hamilton talking about his new book, Defiant Earth. This has been a very different sort of show, and it contrasts with a talk I saw last week with Al Gore. Many of you may have been there. Al Gore also sees nature on the rampage, and he wants us to snap into action with a massive rollout of wind turbines and electric vehicles, a sort of green capitalism that doesn't drill down to the exploitation and crudeness of our growth system. He doesn't really get into the area that, say, Naomi Klein talks about, and many of the people I spoke to after said they didn't really think Al Gore's talk 
told the whole story. It was pretty superficial. Now, on this Beyond Zero Emissions show, we interview climate activists. We report on what is going on in the community, and there is a lot going on. A lot of people are doing things. And so Clive's talk tonight was in opposition to the doing. It's trying to give us guidance for the doing by drilling down into the deeper thinking and conceptualisation that should underpin it. So we interview farmers who whose crops sequester carbon, scientists working on scenarios to reforest land that is compatible with growing more crops. We spoke to seaweed specialists recently growing fodder for livestock that will reduce the methane they pump out. There are people who want to mobilise the population as for wartime and others who want to buy more time with geoengineering projects. Then... There's the ongoing battle to close down coal-fired power stations, to stop fracking for gas, and to certainly stop new coal mines like the Adani mine. And I really wonder, most of us must wonder, will we have time to stop these projects, time enough to leave most of that fossil fuel in the ground? But I think even though we're so busy and we're doing so much, we need also to stop and think about the enormity of what we face. Clive Hamilton wants us to find a way to live in such a way that we get off the path to four degrees of warming and to reframe ourselves so that we will find a path to recovery. Audience talked about the indigenous wisdom, about hope and faith, but Clive says no, this is something completely different. And to finish, I'd just like to read you a little bit to give you a flavour of this book, Defiant Earth, which is very hard. It uses words like teleological and I, you know, I know a lot of people will be off put by the uh, philosophical language of it, but it, it taps into something that you can't get elsewhere. And so here's a little excerpt. In the Anthropocene, we may say that the present is drenched with the future, bringing a feeling for humanity's whole future, the unsettling presence of times to come. With its outlines now discernible, if only dimly, the future is no longer an undetermined domain to which one can escape by means of techno-utopian dreaming, climate engineering, terraforming Mars, for example, space travel and so on. We know what is coming, but we do not know its precise delineations. The Anthropocene will surprise us again and again because it marks a shift in the Earth from predictability to volatility. Gazing at the scientists' colour-coded thermal maps of what the Earth will look like a century hence, with much hotter regions glowing red and much drier ones wilting in yellow, we can indeed make out through the haze of residual uncertainty, the broad contours of nature under the influence of this new human power. And as I have said, we have a choice between responsibility and neglect. On the side of responsibility are gathered the armies of scientific insight into Earth's physical limits, evidence of the harms caused by actual ecological disruption, and the logic of long-term self-interest, the political power of environmentalism, and an inner attachment to the beauty and integrity of nature, and a sense in some cultures and religions that we have an obligation to protect the creation. But against these, neglect 
mobilizes the armies of avarice, intrinsic to an economic structure driven by the profit motive. The enormous political power of corporate interests and the seemingly insatiable demand for material affluence, along with the human weaknesses of willful ignorance, apathy, evasion and denial. Can more be said philosophically about this titanic struggle over how to use our agency? Thank you to Clive Hamilton for his book and for his talks and his public outreach and his struggling with people's incapacity to quite grasp, as we all must admit we can hardly grasp, the situation we're in. Thank you to him. Next week we'll come back to something more practical, but this this philosophical uh, talk, I hope you get something out of it and we'd be very grateful for any feedback. Welcome back to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we still have one double pass left to give away for Al Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, in cinemas from August 10th. If you'd like the last pass, call in 3CR on 94198377. That's 94198377. I'll be hanging around the studios for the next hour or so, so if I miss you call the first time, try again. And... To wrap things up, I want to thank Roger, Teddy, Jody, and Viv who produce this show. I'm Andy and I've been panelling. Uh, thanks to our guests, Professor Clive Hamilton and Tim Dean, and thanks to the Sydney School of Life who put on the event. If you want to read this challenging book by Clive Hamilton, it is called Defiant Earth and it's published by Alan and Unwin. Now, again, if you'd like a double pass to Al Gore's new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, call 3CR now on 94198377. And if you'd like our interest if you're interested in the BZE fundraiser for the film, go to bze.org.au forward slash events forward slash list forward slash or go to the BZE website and click on what's on thanks once again for joining us and till next week stay tuned now for an hour special long presentation of the nile show with aziza i've been andy good night and thanks for joining us beyond zero emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organization we design blueprints for a zero emissions economy As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au. Or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.